Hello and welcome to Art Fictions. This is Gillian Knipe and part of my art practice is being the creator and producer of this podcast which aims to give voice to both artists and art commentators of different ages, genders, cultures, identities and backgrounds. Today we give a warm welcome to our host, poet and critic Cherry Smith along with her guest artist Mikhail Karikas. Theirs is a particularly stirring conversation considering the shared earthly concerns of Mikhail's most recent work, The Weather Orchestra, and Cherry's collaborative book with Craig Jordan Baker, which is titled If the River is Hidden. Together they'll be talking about trust, courage, South Korea, coal miners, eco-activism, protest and pearl divers, as well as chance encounters, female superheroes, community collaboration, violent suppression, active listening, self-censorship, activist imaginary, heteronormative language, acoustics of resistance, Greek working class, repercussions of trauma, our relationship to the earth, sounds to engender change, giving over artistic power, speaking on behalf of the dead, sound as a sculptural material, and a tsunami of screaming, plus being out of tune with ourselves, social context and the environment. Just before we hear from Mikhail and Cherry and get ready for the expected, please rate us and comment as the pesky algorithm of search engines relies on this for our podcast to be found. And also to remind you all that Art Fictions depends entirely on volunteers, so any contribution towards production is hugely appreciated. You can do this via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Okay, let's get going. Welcome to Art Fictions, Mikhail. Thank you. For our discussion today, you've chosen the novel Human Acts by Hang Khan, published by Grant in 2020. It tells the story of the violent suppression of Gwangju, South Korea in 1980. It moves between different perspectives that are interlinked from a teenage boy caught up in the massacre in 1980 to the voice of the writer herself in 2013, who was nine years old at the time of the uprising. It's unflinching in its details of violence and death and the repercussions of trauma. Mikhail, would you like to say why you chose this novel and its pertinence to your life? Uh, well, in fact, the choice of the novel came through a conversation with you rather than directly from me, because I was not really aware of it. But nevertheless, it was harrowing, but also a joy to read because the writing is excellent because of its humanism or rather humanity in it. I could see there are a lot of themes in the book that relate to my work. For that, thank you for giving me the opportunity to actually read it. Yeah, I I wanted to read a little extract from it because I think it's interesting that when all the bodies are brought, the, the murdered students are brought to this big communal building, they're draped in the national flag and they sing the national anthem as though the nation itself hadn't murdered them. And I thought that was really beautiful when the protagonist says the national anthem rang out like a circular refrain, one verse clashing with another against the constant background of weeping. And you listened with bated breath to the subtle dissonance this created, as though this finally might help you understand what the nation really was. 
And I thought that idea of the verses clashing, the weeping, the dissonance and nationhood brought me back to your work and your interest in kind of the seduction of music and how we can cling to these tools of the state which actually can oppress us. So would you like to respond to that maybe in relationship to Greece and the dictatorship there? Well, there are different ways to respond to this. And in fact, the the symbolism of a national anthem has been something that I read about a long time ago. I was very concerned with it because singing has been a very important component of all my work, in particular communal singing and the kind of contradictions that arise from that, which play out in the relationship between the individual and the communal and the disappearance of the individual in the communal or not. And the distinction between the collective and the communal. So what I've come to understand in how I deal in my work with communal singing actually is collective singing. A collectivity is made of individuals that choose to be together and they still uh, maintain their individual characteristics. Whereas an experience like when you go to a football match and everybody's singing the same uh, chant or a national anthem as it is described in this specific book and the way it's been used in oppressive societies as a symbol of nationalism is a a sonic event, I suppose, wherein the individual disappears and the the individual dies and can be sacrificed for the state, Mm. for the Mm. sake of the state. Mm. And then paradoxically, like in this book, then be celebrated by the state that is responsible for the death of the individual. So it's a kind of contradiction in relation to Greece. Of course, it brought memories back of things that I didn't experience firsthand because the dictatorship in Greece ended in 1974. But obviously, it's very recent history and I was brought up with that history, uh, which is commemorated every year to this date. And the student uprising and the invasion of the tanks into the Polytechnic in Athens is a very iconic event that led to... Well, of course, death, but also the whole of Greece was traumatized. Yeah, this book really brought up a lot of those memories of that history, also because it's very graphic in its descriptions. I love the way the writer returned to the idea of the national anthem as a tool of resistance in the scenes in the prison when the prisoners are told not to move, not to speak. And then they start humming the anthem in a stifled whimper. And that brought to mind for me that idea of this sonic commune, which you talk about and create through your work. For me, the core of the book seems to be the question that a censored playwright asks, what is humanity? What do we have to do to keep humanity as one thing and not another? And one of the most bewildering and moving parts of the book was when the playwright defies the censors and puts on a play without any of the words and all the actors mouth the silent words, quote, mumbling, shrieking, moaning. They raise their heads, revealing lips that twitch incessantly. It's such a courageous and generative act It made me think of your imaginative activism, the idea that your work tries to keep humanity one thing and not another. And I wondered if you'd like to say more about that idea of imaginative activism. 
or it's also called creative activism by one of the curators of your work. Yeah, or what I sometimes call the um, how art can generate or activate the kind of activist imaginary, which for me is how can we invent acts of resistance, rebellion, as well as propose new ways of being, alternatives, through creative acts, which challenge and disrupt everyday oppressions. I think this comes from a very specific sentiment, which has been also the title of one of my projects, but it's really the core of a lot of my work, because I always ask myself, why am I doing this work? What is my work about? And what is the emotional source of what I'm doing? And I've come up with a combination of two words. Of course, now I'm thinking of it in Portuguese because this is where I am at the moment, but it's ferocious love. So it's acts of care and expressions of love combined with a kind of ferociousness. It's a kind of love that is not necessarily friendly. It's a kind of love or care or acts that dare to imagine the unspeakable, which I think is very interesting in this book. I, I thought that chapter in which the actors perform the work, no matter whether it's censored or not, but they find an imaginative solution to do what they set out to do, and it becomes more powerful by actually mouthing the words without the sound. When I was reading that chapter, I thought, okay, so probably a lot of the people in the audience had already read the book. So the sounds of the words were resonating in their heads. But even if they hadn't read the book, of course, it's an act that both exposes the ridiculousness of that censorship, as well as the ability to resist and imagine a way of going ahead, bypassing censorship and oppression. So this is where I think the activist imaginary is precisely in that act, imagining a resistance, a way to go forward that is inventive and is not compromised and it comes up with something new. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Han Khan talks about conscience being the most terrifying thing in the world. And it's not a word we often hear when we're talking about art. We talk about, you know, maybe the ethics of participation in your work, the ethics of imagination. But it's interesting that word conscience and how it relates to action and justice in the novel. And that also recalled the way you work with people to expand their space to speak and their interaction on these themes. I wondered how you think we're beginning to move on a little bit more to your work, which I will introduce in a second. But that idea of ethics, how do you think that accrued to you so profoundly that it runs through all of the work in a very clear and an almost moral stand and that seems like a very old-fashioned word to use as well but I'd like you to speak maybe about where you think that came from. Well first of all I don't really differentiate between my work and myself in many ways especially when it comes to ethics. So what I practice in everyday life and the way I interact with others and the way I want to be treated, I extend that to my practice. So the ethics 
of acknowledging someone's humanity and position wherever they are at and and creating i suppose what my projects do they create they orchestrate situations in which people can find expressive opportunities to assert or to express what who they are what the conditions of their lives are so you know orchestrating situations could be as simple as you know setting up a dialogue or having a room with food where we might eat and then a conversation happens maybe or maybe not but allowing i suppose things and people to be who they are and creating an environment in which acceptance and care are the two most important principles of interaction yeah and i think it's similar to han khan because she really is speaking as herself in the final chapter of the book and saying you know i was 9 years old when this happened and children around me disappeared and that mark of that trauma is as brought all the way into the novel do you want to say anything else about what struck you in the novel before we move on to talking about your specific practice well so many things struck me in the novel the question that I was asking myself how can someone how can the author find the courage to speak in the voice of the dead yeah that was an amazing part when she describes the soul leaving the body and clinging yeah. on and then suddenly wanting to flee i mean that was one of the most amazing pieces in the novel where the voice is speaking from this pile of bodies and then it interacts with the other souls it's beautiful isn't it and it's really amazing i was thinking can i do that i just don't feel i have the the courage to do it and i don't feel entitled to do it somehow to speak on behalf of the dead of those who have been oppressed yeah yeah it's a challenge and just to see someone do it so well is just really inspiring and she returns to this in chapter 2 in the very moving voice of the best friend of the protagonist who lies contemplating his murdered body while being dumped in a pile outside the city the author's beautifully sparse tone is so suited to these questions of the ineffable. And I'd just like to read this short extract from the novel to um, show how that's done. It must have been about midnight when I felt it touch me, that breath-soft slip of incorporeal something, that faceless shadow, lacking even language now to give it body. I waited for a while in doubt and ignorance of who it was, of how to communicate with it. No one had ever taught me how to address a person's soul. And perhaps, or so it seemed, my companion was equally baffled. Without the familiar bulwark of language, still we sensed as a physical force our existence in the mind of the other. When eventually I felt him sigh away, his resignation, his abandonment, left me alone again. Hello, it's me again, Gillian Knipe. I'd just like to highlight Michael's website, spelt M-I-K-H-A-I-L-K-A-R-I-K-I-S dot com. There you can listen to trailers of his extraordinary work, including performers reaching from Portugal and Madeira to Syria and Denmark. You'll also hear a little of Ferocious Love, which was highly recommended by Laura Cumming in The Guardian during its Tate Liverpool showing. 
and speaks towards a new vision of what humanity could be, referring to triumph of possibility over hopelessness. Now to my final point before we hear more about Mihail's work. Our email is artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. Please feel welcome to get in touch. You might tell us what you think of today's shorter format, the result of tedious tech problems, by the way. Or just pop up and tell us something about your own art journey, like 67-year-old Matilda Bevan did after listening to the episode with Kerry Hand. Based in Northumberland, Matilda's very excited about her upcoming show at the Granary Gallery, and she recommends to listeners Alison Brannigan's book, The Essential Guide to Business for Artists and Designers. And that's enough from me. Mikhail, you're an artist who's mostly known for your multidisciplinary practice that uses installations of video, sound, photographs and performance. These pieces usually feature marginalised people from retired Kent miners to working class adolescents in rural Essex. Your work is exhibited internationally, including at the Whitechapel Gallery and currently at the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Athens. New work was commissioned by the European Capital of Culture in Aarhus in Denmark in 2017 and by Tate Liverpool in 2020. One of the things that has enthralled me about your practice over the past decade is the way you involve communities, as we've said, in a collaborative and participatory process. You've talked about really how that came about, and I'd like to talk about specifically how you approach the voice that you give these people through composing sound for them often as a political and sculptural material. Well, there was a very significant moment in that transformed my practice uh, around 2008, 2009. Until then, I was at the centre of my performances and my investigation of my medium was mainly the voice. And I was uh, thinking of the voice beyond speech. What is to speak beyond the kind of confines of language and the politics that language brings with it of heteronormativity, of class, of all these things that a lot of us know and will live and uh, reenact every day by using language. But there was a point that I felt that my politics was not aligning with my practice, uh, with what I was doing, being a white male at the centre of all my work, center stage with a spotlight on me. So I took a very conscious decision and I thought, okay, well, university taught me a lot of things. Art school taught me a lot of things, but still, can I use those skills to bring them closer to things that really interest me politically? And because of the background that I come from, you know, second generation Greek, my family are from Asia Minor, there is a kind of working class background there that connects with labor and factory work and uh, social activism and communism and my family. So I thought, okay, how can I involve people that are closer to where I come from in terms of like class and work? So I decided to co- to start collaborating or to try to, to start collaborating with people who are not like what I've become, I guess. This kind of uh, educated person that reads Derrida and knows who Roland Barthes is and goes to galleries. So this is how it started with the work Sounds from Beneath, which was a collaboration with a group of coal miners 
who lost their jobs after a long period of protest and picket lines in uh, 1986 in uh, southeast Kent. I approached them and asked them to recall the sounds they used to hear when they worked in the mines. It sounds very directed, what I'm, what I'm saying. Actually, this is not how it occurred. It happened, you know, by me visiting a, a workingmen's club and starting conversations with people who were drinking there and then hearing uh, sounds of singing coming from the back of the bar and me tentatively, like, you know, going and having a listen and then just being curious, I suppose, and starting a conversation. And each one of my projects starts, I suppose, often with a chance encounter in which there needs to be some kind of chemistry, some kind of connection. And then progressively, if we, if both parties want, you know, a relationship of trust develops and then eventually a project, you know, develops out of that. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. Yeah, you did completely, very well, beautifully. Uh, yeah. The voice beyond speech and, and the idea of giving over your power in a way, which is just really interesting and it works very effectively. I wanted to pick up on the environmental consequences of lost industry, which have been present in your work again for, for many years. And the focus on climate breakdown has become much more apparent and pressing recently. In No Ordinary Protest from 2018, you worked for a year in a school in the East End with seven-year-olds to create a beautiful and empowering response to Ted Hughes's book, The Iron Woman, which was written in 1993. In the novel, a female superhero invests children with a mysterious sound that can engender change. Using masks and improvised roars, the children become agents of imaginative social transformation, anticipating the widespread Fridays for Future school protests against global heating. Would you like to speak a bit more about how recent work builds on that theme, like the Weather Orchestra and the ideas of acoustics of resistance? Sure. It took me a while to understand or to perceive that, that there was actually a very strong connection between all my projects, despite the fact that they were uh, realized with different people in different parts of the world. And starting okay, early on with you know ideas of censorship and work and self-censorship, and then moving on to working with coal miners or pearl divers, and then in a, an electricity plant in Italy, where sustainable energy production was invented, then I actually began to see that I'm looking for something. And what it is, is I'm, I'm investigating our relationship to the, to the earth, starting from a kind of history of extractivism and different forms of labor that connect to extractivism, then moving on to more indigenous, traditional, sustainable or eco-feminist relationships to the planet and forms of labor, and then moving on to the industrialization of sustainable energy production and what that means, and then moving on in a more direct way to questions around eco-activism, like in No Ordinary Protest. It is connected to childhood and eco-activism, but also ontological questions around what is nature and what is human, what is animal. And then moving on to more recent work, Acoustics of Resistance, which is a larger project that is really about this activist imaginary. So what languages can we invent 
to create resonances with nature and that resist what is going on, the majority of this kind of capitalist structures of what it is that they are bringing to the world. So I suppose some of that started with a very striking experience I had in a Fridays for Future protest. It was in Luxembourg and there were tens of thousands of young people. Everybody went quiet and they sat on the floor. And then suddenly I hear this tsunami of noise coming from the back. It was basically youth like just screaming. They were not saying anything. They were screaming. But of course, noise was the message. They were screaming and it was this wave that came from the back through us, went to the front and then came all the way back. It was so powerful, this inarticulate, but yet very precise articulation of protest, of resistance, of collectivity, of activism, that I thought, okay, actually, there is an acoustics to this resistance. Mm -hmm. Is there more? Mm -hmm. And the acoustics of resistance as a concept also includes listening. And how I think of listening is active listening is really a form of resistance. And I came to that realization, which might sound very naive, but it was a moment, a kind of light bulb moment, when I was working with a group of carers of people that are nonverbal, neurodiverse people. And for a very long time, I was observing that what they do is they sit, they just sit. And I was thinking, what work are they doing right now? What is their work? And it was not until one of them, as I was speaking to him, suddenly was not present with me. He was somewhere else. And I told him, you know, is everything all right? He said, I have to go downstairs. And that was because he heard the sound of the person that he was looking after. And um, frequencies of his voice were different from what they usually are. And that was a sign for the carer to go downstairs. Mm -hmm. So then I thought, actually, this is what they're doing. They're just sitting and listening. Mm -hmm. And not just that moment all the time. If an aspect of activism includes making audible what is inaudible and visible what is invisible, listening has the power to do that, to make space, time, and create the emotional container or the inaudible, well, it's not inaudible, it has become inaudible because it's been suppressed, but making the effort to listen to that, that means that you are you are unearthing it, you're bringing it mm. or acknowledging its presence and you're making it visible and audible. Mm. And that is one of the aims of activism. That's in the piece I Hear You, which was, I think, uh, 2019, wasn't it? Let's take a listen to a clip from the Weather Orchestra, your latest piece of work. Where can we see your work coming up next? Well, at the moment, there are a few large exhibitions of my work. One is the one you mentioned in Athens, in the National Museum of Contemporary Art, which is a kind of mid-career 
survey exhibition that includes about 11 works and several audiovisual installations. There is one that is opening this Saturday in Canada. Haven't you one at the showroom coming up? Sure, yes. So at the moment, I'm in conversation in the UK. I'm in conversation with three institutions, in fact. One is the showroom in London. The other one is home in Manchester. And we are creating a collaboration between the two institutions, a commission for 2024. And there is going to be a solo show at Halbert Gallery in Devon, where I will exhibit the Weather Orchestra, which is in this most recent project, Mm -hmm. next January. Great. I mean, we have talked about how you read a lot of non-fiction rather than fiction. What non-fiction books are you, you usually have quite a few books in the go-to, what non-fiction books are you reading at the minute? And I imagine like, me you read these books about climate breakdown and you have to keep putting them aside because they're just you know so profoundly upsetting so what are you reading at the minute I'm not going to recommend or suggest a a climate change uh, book at the moment but the laptop that I'm speaking from is sitting on resonance by Hartmut Rosa Hartmut Rosa is a German sociologist, and in this book, he is talking about resonance in a beautiful way, our relationship to the planet, and how the state that we're in might be because there is a lack of resonance between humans and nature, but also he talks about social problems through the same concept, as well as uh, mental health issues in relation to that. So not making the time, not having the environments in which one can resonate with oneself. So Mm. going out of tune with oneself, going one tune with our environment, uh, going out of tune with our social context. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And those two words kept recurring in my mind, resonance and resistance. And we're going to wrap up there. So thank you, listeners. And thank you, Mikhail, for being on Art Fictions. That was really, really so enjoyable and fascinating. And I just want to listen to it all again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you, listeners. And also thanks to today's guest, Mikhail Karikas, and our lovely host, Cherry Smith. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>